Ephesians chapter number two, we'll begin with verse number one and go through verse number ten. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Oh, yes, Jesus loves me. For the Bible tells me so. Let's sing that again, church. Somebody needs to know. Yes, Jesus. loves me this I know for the Bible tells me so little ones to him belong they are weak but he is strong say it yeah sing church Do you really believe that? Oh, yeah. Just get with me right here. I want somebody to, I want everybody to tell, turn to two people and tell them Jesus loves you. Go find two people and just tell them Jesus loves you.
go find those same two people and tell them I love you. Go. people and tell them nothing can separate you from the love of God. Go. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. lie. He is the father of truth. And all he knows how to do is tell the truth. And this is his truth. I love you. Oh. Ephesians chapter 2. Let's see if we can have a sense of God's love this morning. Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter number two. And 
you were dead. In the trespasses and sins in which you, which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind, but God. Let me read that part again. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may have your seat. We've been studying through this book of Ephesians. On last week, we read the last section of Ephesians chapter 1. In the last section of Ephesians chapter 1, Paul prayed for this church at Ephesus. And at the end of the, the focus of Paul's prayer is that they would know God. They wanted, he wanted them to be enlightened. But at the very end, he, Paul says, I specifically want you to be enlightened about the power of God. And he specifically says that the power of God was made most evident. God's power was most supreme when he raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at the right hand of God, far above all power, and, 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 and he's far above every name. And so now take, Paul takes this, he says, I want you to be enlightened about the power of God, and he shows how the power of God was demonstrated in him raising Christ from the dead and sitting him at his right hand. Now, Paul wants to show them specifically how the power of God is at work in them individually. 
But before he can show them the mighty power of God, he first has to show them how powerless they are or was before Christ. First thing that Paul expounds upon in Ephesians chapter 2, he says, you must know that you first of all are separated from God. You are separated from God. In what sense have we been separated from God? First of all, Paul says we are dead. Verse 1a, he says, and you were dead. Physical death is the separation of the soul from the body. In like manner, spiritual death is the separation of the creature from its creator. All humans without Christ are severed, separated, alienated from God who is the source of all life. Those who are dead are powerless. Those who are dead bring nothing to the table. Those who are dead have nothing to offer or contribute. Spiritually dead people have no desire for God or the things of God. They are dead. Why? Are all people dead? Keep reading verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Most scholars agree that that word in has the meaning of because. You were dead because of your trespasses and sins. Death is the punishment or the consequence of trespasses and sins. Death comes because of sin. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Death is what all men have earned. Death is what all people are owed. Death is what all people deserve because of sin. Why do we sin? Paul tells us. He says we sin, one, because we are under the control of this worldly age. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the age of this world. What is the age of this world? It's the present evil period of time that we currently live in, in which we currently exist. Jews divide, uh, divided ages into two periods, the present evil age, which is ruled by Satan, and then the age to come when Christ returns and all things are under his rule. We are under the control of the world. 
But not only are we under the control of the world, but we sin because we're also under the control of, Paul says, the prince of the power of the air. Let's break those main words down. The prince is one who rules. The word power should better be translated authority. That, that word refers to one, a realm or, or uh, over which one rules. The air is the location underneath heaven and above the surface of the earth. It's the place over which Satan reigns. Therefore, he is called the prince of the power of the air. Satan, who is a spiritual being, is now at work in whom Paul calls the sons of disobedience. Therefore, all men and women are separated from God. We are separated from God because we are dead. We are dead because we are sinners. We, are, we have a sin nature that causes us to sin. But not only are we separated from God because we are dead, but Paul also says you are separated from God because you are depraved. That word depraved means morally corrupt or evil. And Paul paints a dark picture of depravity here in verse 3. He, he writes, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Paul says every part of us, our flesh, our body, and our mind, has been affected and infected by sin. Friends, there is no part of us that is unstained or untainted by sin. Theologians call this principle total depravity. Total depravity means that sin pervades the whole person. Our body, our soul, our mind, our will, etc. We are totally depraved because we are under the control or under the power of sin. Because we are under the control of sin, church, we don't have the power to save ourselves from the penalty of our sin. We are totally depraved. We are radically corrupt. We are separated from God because we are dead. We are depraved. And as a result, we are doomed. Verse 3, C clause. And were by nature Children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. By nature means by birth. By birth, all people are fallen. By birth, 
all people are morally corrupt. By birth, all people are opposed to God. No one, church, is born innocent. No one is born morally neutral. Why? Because we've been born in sin and shaping in iniquity. We have inherited a sin nature from our forefather, Adam. We all are, remember this, in Adam. We've all been birthed in his likeness and in his image. Because of willful sin, we stand condemned under the wrath of God. What a dark picture Paul has painted. We are dead. We are depraved. And friends, we are doomed. But God. Yes, we were separated from God. But secondly, we've, been, we've now been saved by God. Verses 4 through 6. But God, being rich in mercy, the basis, the grounds on which we are saved by God are twofold. Instead of giving us the wrath we deserve, God instead shows us mercy. In other words, instead of giving us what we deserve, the wrath that we ultimately deserve become by nature, instead of giving us the wrath we deserve, God gives us what we don't deserve. That's mercy. That's compassion. God shows pity towards us. And that pity is not just a feeling inside of God, but it moves him to act on our behalf. The basis for us being saved by God is God's own mercy, his compassion towards us. But, but still, though, when we get to the ultimate cause of things, the question that we have to ask is, is what would make a holy God and a just God merciful towards sinners? What would make a holy and just God merciful towards dead, depraved, doomed sinners? Paul doesn't leave us to wonder or come up with our own answers. He says the reason God shows us mercy, verse 4, is because of the great love with which he loved us. It was God's love toward us that caused him to show mercy towards sinners who deserved his Wrath. Friends, this is love. The beginning of verse 5 reminds us that he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses. It had to be love. Look, look, look. When we were at our worst, 
God still loved us. While we broke his laws, he loved us. When we were morally corrupt, depraved, God loved us. God loves those who mer merit only condemnation. Oh, child of God, Paul wants you to know this morning that you are loved by God. Friends, this is free. You don't have to go searching for love. The God who is love pursues you. Problem with many of us is that we look for love in all the wrong places. But God doesn't have us come look for him. We can't look for him. We're dead. We're depraved. So what does God do? He pursues us. Why would God pursue us? Love. Friends, this is amazing love. He has flooded us with his love. The only way we can really appreciate the love of God is if we understand that really what we deserve is the hate or the wrath of God. Hate in the sense of rejection. That's what we deserve. That's what Paul painted that picture in verse, verses 1 through 3. You who are dead in your trespasses and sins. God still loved you. God loves you so much that he sent his one and only son to die in your place. The wrath we deserved God put on his own son. And friends, the words we sang a moment ago are so true. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. That's love. That's the basis. God's loving mercy. But then Paul says, now let me share with you the benefits of being saved by God. Verses 5 through 6. He says, first of all, we now have been made alive with Christ. There's been a radical transformation we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but now because of God's love and mercy, we now are alive. We have passed from death to life. We've been born again. Paul wants to make sure that we understand that everything he writes from this point is all about God. I believe that's why he starts with, but God. This is what man does. But God, we've been born again. And new birth is all the work of God. We are no longer separated and alienated from God. We now have communion restored with God. We have eternal life. Not only we have the benefit of being made alive with Christ, but we also have been raised up with Christ. 
We have been spiritually resurrected. We've been brought back from the dead. And because of this spiritual resurrection, we are no longer under the power of sin. Sin is no longer our master. You can overcome sin. You can be victorious over sin. Sin has been put to death by Jesus Christ on the cross. We no longer have the spirit of, of verses 1 through 3 at work in us. The spirit of Satan is no longer at work in us. We have another spirit in us, and this spirit is a person, the Holy Spirit. And he gives us everything we need to fight sin. We've been made alive. We've been raised up with Christ. And now we can walk in the newness of life. We are a new creation. Not only have we been made alive, not only have we been raised up, but Paul says, even now you've been seated with Christ. Paul says, even now, you have an exalted position with Christ. We sit with Christ on a royal throne. We reign with Christ. We are no longer under the power of Satan. We are over him. Now, one observation that is crucial in these verses are some prepositional phrases. Look, notice what Paul says. We have been made alive, here it is, with Christ and raised up with him and seated with him. These phrases, church, refer to the believer's union with Christ. By union with Christ, I mean that Christ is now in us and we are in him. We are now one with Christ. There's a solidarity between us and Christ. And now the question that you want to ask is, how does this happen? How can we be united with Christ? Here's what Paul says about it. He says it's a mystery. But it's something that we ought to treasure nonetheless. This union with Christ is now our new identity. We are one with Christ. We are in Christ. We are with Christ. This is now who we are. We are in Christ. I have been crucified with Christ so that it is no longer I that live, but Christ who lives in me. We are one with him. All right. We've been separated by God, from God, we have been saved by God, but thirdly, why has God done all of this? Verses 7 through 10, thirdly, we've been saved for God. Verse 7, so that, so that, whenever you see that, Paul is normally giving us purpose or result. Here it's purpose. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Why has God saved us for himself? Paul says, first of all, God saved us so that we might display.
display his grace. We are saved for God and that we have been saved to display his grace. God intervened on our behalf and saved us so that we could put his grace on display for all of eternity. We are God's trophies that he puts in a display case. We, church, are God's show and tell. You want to know how gracious God is? God says, look at my children. You want to know how kind God is? He says, look at my children. Why has God saved us? For himself. As we display God's grace, goodness, and kindness, we are living evidences of God's grace and kindness. As we do this, we point people away from ourselves and to him to whom we owe our salvation. In other words, we have been saved for the glory of God. God has saved us by grace so that we would stand in awe of his wondrous, amazing grace. We are God's display case of his grace. Paul says we, he wants to display the immeasurable riches of his grace. God is wealthy in grace. Now, Paul wants to expound on the immeasurable riches of God's grace. Verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Paul says you are saved by grace. Grace is unmerited favor. We are giving something we don't deserve. That's why they call grace and mercy twins. Grace is God extending giving us what we don't deserve. His mercy is God not giving us what we do deserve. And Paul puts both of these in this text. We deserve wrath, but God doesn't give it to us. That's mercy. He saves us. That's God's gift, which we don't deserve. Paul wants us to know that we've been saved by grace, 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 which means that God is under no obligation to save anyone. Friends, we've got to get this. If we got this, we stop arguing about election so much. If we got this, we, start, we stop arguing about predestination so much. Grace. God is under no obligation to save any of us. By nature, <laughs> we deserve God's wrath. That's what we've earned on our very best day. Grace, God don't owe you nothing. When I said it the other way, y'all didn't respond, so I had to give you some incorrect grammar. Well, I don't like the election because it just doesn't seem fair. It's grace. He's not under any obligation. (laughs) 
Why would God save some and not save everybody? It's grace. He's God. He's holy and just. He, he's under no obligation. That's what makes grace so amazing. That he would even save any of us. I've said this before, but I just feel like saying it one more time. If God only saved one of us, he'd still be gooder than good. Okay, y'all don't like that. If God decided to save 10 out of the billions of people on the earth, he'd still be good. He'd still be holy and just and righteous. If God saves one of us, that's one too many that don't deserve it. We're saved by grace. What are we saved from? It's in the text. Go back to verse 3. By nature, we are children of what we need to fear more than anything is the wrath of God. And Paul tells us in Romans 1 that the wrath of God is already being revealed. Every time you hear somebody talking about, well, the world just seems to be going to hell in the half basket, the wrath of God is being revealed. That's what's happening. Every time you feel like there's, there's this liberalization morally and ethically of society, the wrath of God is being revealed. I told the group who came here a couple of Wednesdays ago, we always want to talk about humans being free and we want to talk about free will. Actually, God's freedom to sinners is a sign of his wrath. In Romans 1, he says that God gave them up to a reprobate mind. What happens is, God's wrath is that he says, instead of you receiving my restraining grace, because none of us are as bad as we really could be, that's utter depravity. But that's not what, the, what we believe in. We believe in total depravity, that every part of us has, has been stained by sin. But, every time, but what God does is he restrains us from doing some of the evil we would do. He and so what God says, as a part of my wrath, I'm going to remove some of my restraining grace. I'm actually going to give you more freedom. And look at what happens in our world when sinners get more freedom. That's what we need to be in fear of is the wrath of God. You think Hitler was something? It could be worse if God removed his restraining grace. So what we are saved from is the very wrath of God. We've been saved by grace, and the way we receive this salvation is by faith. That's the channel, the instrument by which we obtain what, what God has already paid for. We are saved by grace through faith, putting all of our confidence and dependence in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who hung, bled, and died on the cross, was buried, and rose on the third day. Paul keeps going. He says, we are saved by grace through faith, it is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God so that no one may boast. Salvation 
from beginning to end is all a work of God. Man has nothing to offer God. Man has nothing to contribute to his salvation. No one is entitled to be saved. Remember, without Christ, we are dead. Dead people don't contribute anything. We are totally depraved, meaning we don't desire God or the things of God. Because of total depravity, our quote-unquote free will has been affected by sin. So that we would not even choose God on our own. Ooh, I'm getting some emails this week. That's all right. I know how to put my block on. No amount of human effort, friends, could make us worthy enough to deserve God's grace. Let me make you really mad. We don't even contribute our choice to exercise faith. It's in the text. We are saved by grace through faith. It is the gift of God. Now, I've told you this before, scholars start having arguments. Well, what is he referring to when he says this is a gift from God? Is it the grace? Is it the salvation? Or is it the faith? Answer, yes. It's all of God. An unregenerate person, a depraved, dead person cannot exercise saving faith unless God gives it to him. Why is this so important? Why is it so important that we, we, we get this right? or at least try to get this right concerning soteriology, the study of salvation. It's in the text. Read it. It's the gift of God. Here it is. So that no one can boast. What's at stake, church, is the very glory of God. And why is that so important? What's the purpose or the chief end of man? To glorify God. Why is this so important that man cannot be able to boast? Because God is jealous for his own glory. And his glory he will share with no other, including you. And every time we think man has the ability to contribute anything to his salvation, we give man room to boast. What's at stake here is not only the glory of God, but our understanding of our total depravity. Our understanding of how heinous and horrific sin is to a holy God. We got to get this, church. It is the gift of God. Remember, we said we've been saved for God. 
His glory is what matters here. There is no room for man to boast when it comes to his salvation because we have nothing to contribute or nothing to offer. That's how jacked up we are. We've been saved for God to display his grace, but finally we've been saved for God to do good works. That's verse 10. For we are his workmanship. Poema in the Greek, where we get our word poem. We are God's work of art, God's masterpiece. And Paul reminds us that we've been created in Christ Jesus. Question for the audience. What did man contribute originally when God created the heavens and the earth? So what can we contribute to God's new creation? You can help me preach. Nothing. We are God's workmanship, his masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Good works are good deeds. That's the outcome of our salvation. We perform good works, church, when we love our neighbor as ourselves. Now, some may be saying to themselves, but even unbelievers do good deeds, and to that I agree. And sometimes unbelievers do a better job of it than believers, unfortunately. Why is that the case, Reverend? Let me give you my best stab. We must remember that all men have been created in the image of God. And that image, even though it's been defaced or distorted by sin, it has not been erased. We still have the image of God within us, so it's been distorted. And as a part of being created in the image of God, we still have the ability to do some good. The difference between believers and unbelievers is our motive. We are motivated because we now desire God, the things of God, the purposes of God. We want to bring our God pleasure. But when unbelievers do good deeds, it's always motivated, motivated by some sinful desire. But we are now a new creation. God's workmanship, a work of art. God prepared this beforehand that we should walk in them. Paul takes us back now to the very beginning. He says, once, formerly, you walked according to to the age of this world. You walked in your trespasses and sins, but now as part of God's new creation, you're going to walk in these good works that God created beforehand. Friends, why are you saved? For God. For his glory and the good of your fellow man. All of this to the glory of God. 
What we receive is loving mercy. And as a result of God's loving mercy, we have been saved by grace. Can, can, I, can, can I just show you, can I use a little bit of my training real quick that my wife paid thousands of dollars for? <laughs> we have been saved by grace. Well, why, why is it important that it's translated that way rather than just saying we are saved by grace? Because if we say we are saved by grace, by grace, that's a past action that's completed, and that's it. But it, when, when it says we have been saved, it's what we—it's in the perfect tense. The perfect tense is the past, present, and future combined. In other words, it's a past act that has been completed, but it has ongoing ramifications. In other words, what Paul is doing is he's giving us that old theology. We have been saved from the very penalty of sin. We are no longer objects of God's wrath. We are no longer have to fear God's wrath. We no longer have to fear his punishment. Why? Because we've been saved, rescued, delivered from the very penalty that our sin so deserves. But even now, not only have we been uh, been saved from the very penalty of sin, but in this moment right now, today, and until we see him again, we are being saved from the very power of sin. We call that sanctification, becoming more like Christ, fighting sin, defeating sin, having victory over sin. God is still saving us, working on us from the very power of sin. We still live in a fallen world. We still feel the effects of sin. We see the realities of living in a fallen world. And so we still have to fight this power that won't go down without a fight. But Paul says we are still being saved in this moment from the very power of sin. And in our sanctification, God works with us, but we still have personal responsibility to fight, to obey. We have been saved, past, we are being saved, uh, uh, present, but not only, but we will be saved, future, from the very presence of sin. Glorification. In glory, sin will be no more. In glory, we will not feel the effects or consequences of sin because it would have been defeated fully and finally. We, we have been saved, and all of it, past, present, and future, is by grace. Not of works, lest any man should boast. And so what Paul wants us to see today is the mighty power of of God in saving sinful, dead, depraved sinners. That takes power to bring life to a dead corpse. But God did it. We've been made alive. We've been raised to life. And now we're seated with Christ. Worship team, you can come back. What's the application 
What's the response, Brandon, from today's sermon? So, sometimes, do you know that sometimes the application from a sermon is just for you to know? See, we want to be able to leave here and do something. But something precedes doing, and that's being. We are human beings, not human doers. And I think partly what Paul wants us to know is God's amazing love and God's amazing grace. Now, that knowledge should lead us to worship. That knowledge should lead us to be in awe of our mighty God. That knowledge should lead, lead us to reverence God. Paul wants us to know that we are recipients of God's divine mercy. Paul wants us to know that we are loved by God. And that's God's motive in doing everything he does for us is his love. Paul wants us to know that we've been saved by grace. But all of this that God has done is for God's glory. So what we ought to do is give glory to God. Live for the glory of God. But there is a specific application for us from the text. Good works good deeds. Why? Because God has prepared this beforehand for us to do. We are to display God's, the immeasurable riches of God's grace. When people see you do they see the recipient of someone that has received the grace of God? When people see you, do they, can they tell that something's different about you? We are God's trophy pieces that he displays before all the world for all eternity. For somebody, the response is this. You need to be saved. You stand. You came here standing condemned under the wrath of God, and it is real. A.W. Pink said that, God, that the Bible speaks of God's anger, fury, and wrath more than it does his love and tenderness. You need to understand that you are the object of God's wrath. And you need to be saved from that wrath. Not only do you need to be, but you can be saved from that wrath. God has made a way through Jesus Christ for you to be saved. And so for somebody, the response from today's sermon is you need to be saved, and that is by grace through faith. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. 
So our prayer is that the Holy Spirit will begin to do a work in your heart so that you can believe, so that you will have confidence, and that you will put all your dependence and trust in Christ and him alone. Not in being a good person, not in good works, doing good things or good deeds, but in Christ alone. Friend, believe the truth that you have heard today. Let's stand.